Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers who sit around, drink, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There is no censorship, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are Chaz Brenchley, John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is Episode 82, Writing Satire. We have a guest today, uh, somebody that I found on Twitter and had interesting points of view in writing, and we fell to talking about writing. His name is Adam Singer, and he's come to join us today. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me today, Jamie. It's my delight. You had mentioned that you were a, a new writer getting started, and you sent me a couple pieces. What you looked at was going political satire, and we had not discussed any kind of satire really at all in terms of a trope, in terms of symbolism, or in terms of just pure delicious escapism satire. And I thought this would be a great thing to talk about today. I'll be happy to talk about the stuff I've been working on and just a bit of the process and trying to do something that can be seen as uh, strange or shocking after the past couple of years and the times we are apparently in right now. Shocking is going to be hard. That is diff- that is absolutely true. So, so you're actually saying that although satire may be dead, you've been able to Frankenstein it back alive with a little bit of shock. Is that what you're about to reveal to us? If you will check in your emails, I sent you guys the. I, I have I have read the missives. The truths, the the blinding revelations. But I'm actually asking this not just for myself, but for all those listeners out there, Dr. Frankenstein. Actually, that would be Dr. Frankenstein. Anyway, will you reveal your secrets? About uh, with the story of the secret ingredient, I was recently saying to a friend who was asking about this, what is the point or what is more of the deeper stuff I'm talking about that partly that story sort of more blatantly is dealing with anti-Semitism and persecution and othering. But I'm also talking really about dehumanization as a thing and pushing people to recognize these dynamics. There's a lot of people that shy away from that. And we even on this podcast, you are the first time we've hit the edge of current political topics. So doing this well, obliquely, <laughs> as I say, I wanted to do this obliquely because it brings up something that we've talked about. And a couple of authors have said, how are we going to talk about the current things? We, we met with Harry Turtledove, who did alternative, what if we had not separated from the crown? What if we had not? And this is an interesting way of looking forward of what if the coup had been successful on Tuesday? What if four years from now, eight years from now, what might America look like? And good, good. other things, what if World War III had happened? And there's a lot of alternative history. I think we are only starting to see people that are saying, what if the plague actually takes out half of America? What would have happened if the event Tuesday had been successful? What if, what if? And I think that we can call it satire and we can call it speculative to play those games with both political satire and unreal future. And what if it all was terribly wrong? It definitely don't look right. A lot of stuff right now. (laughs) Well, exactly. And so satire, I mean, I don't know if you had read The Deepest State uh, before you started on that. It was a satirical epic that I think somebody started writing on Twitter. The The Deepest Deepest State was written by Oliver Willis. And 
No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, okay. I almost want to say either you should or you shouldn't, because as I was reading your mm-hmm. stories, it reminded me of those pieces because he wrote kind of for Twitter at first of little pieces that each could go out on tweets and he later assembled them all into a novel. And yeah. it was kind of making fun of everybody's worries all at the same time. It was, mm. what if Oprah and Nancy and Michelle Obama and all of the powerful women in the country were a secret cabal of witches? <laughs> and so I, I like that. And your piece reminded me of that spirit of saying, all right, let's play with reality just a little bit. As these headlines are coming and we're all overwhelmed by them, let's play about political thriller, maybe a little bit of insanity, maybe a little bit of satire. And I I like where you've started to go with that. Partly, uh, I started from a bit of the premise or a bit of the idea of what if all and each and every one of the crazy, insane claims that are being made are factually true and you know the what what would a america post trump in where he actually is literally the best president in history and fulfills all the promises and all the crazy claims are treated as though it's literal fact was sort of more or less where i began from And as I've learned more and we've seen more stuff going on in the world, the stories have become dated in some interesting ways. But it's part of this ongoing experiment of mine. And how can you do something that could possibly seem more crass and bizarre and blasphemous and the rest of it than what we actually are seeing in the world. It's almost difficult because I'm not sure if you need to hold up a magnifying glass or just a mirror. I mean, you just have to have a working camera these days. (laughs) That is true. So in terms of satire, have you, uh, political satire in particular, there's, it feels like cartoonists have been some of the only ones to really deep into this. What is your, where did you grow up with satire, reading and appreciating it in your history? Recent satire that I've, in the pandemic, I've gone back to Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels, actually, as what is the perfect satire, ultimately, of humanity altogether. But as a kid, reading of satire or encountering stuff like it, I guess. You know, in America, we had this culture that has been very much about finding people to, as public figures or, you know, mocking personalities and stuff is something that's pretty deeply entrenched in how they want you to be viewing the world and in My story that I sent you, Hour of Terror, part of what I'm deconstructing there and talking about is the talking head stuff of uh, just needing to drive the ratings and hysteria and coming up with crazy, what lengths of insanity and depravity are there and does any of it even matter to any of the people who are spreading these lies, I guess. Sorry, that's not an answer of early 
influences, but that's a little more about uh, that one story. Yeah, no, that- um, it's it's interesting. You should mention Jonathan Swift. I was I was having a conversation with Will Self a few years back. Um, he's probably the premier British satirist of, of of our time, and and he was talking about feeling that he does he really does work in a tradition sort of going back through people like Thomas Love Peacock to Jonathan Swift. And I, and I was I was thinking about this, and I don't know if there is an established American tradition in the same way. I mean, I haven't been in American very long, obviously, and, <laughs> and I genuinely don't know. There is something about Swift, though, that when you really look at Jonathan Swift's work, and especially the fourth voyage of Gulliver, mm-hmm. which... Without getting into spoilers for listeners who may not have read it, I think people should read first or independently because it's clearly the most important and climactic part of the book. Well, it is. I don't think you need to worry about spoilers for a book that's, you know, several centuries old. Well, in that case, if we're going uh, with that, that in showing us the distinction between the rational Cunehans and the awful Yahoos and the way that as nature takes its course in different people or different groups, there is a ultimate misanthropy and the rejection even of human nature as something to identify with. And I don't know if that's a national thing or if that's just a uniquely personal, like just the level of Jonathan Swift's whatever exactly it was that he was going on. Well, I was thinking, I mean, as as you were asking that question, I was turning over my head of satire. The only other American that I think really did pushed on it is did any of did you all of you I presume or any of you read Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller? Of course. Third person omniscient narration, different characters out of sequence. So similar idea set in World War II, but basically it also was very much a satire of a person, somebody's stuck, basically looking at the lens of the serious war was very brutal, life was very brutal. And a lot of ways it goes through and at the end of it really shows you the full horror that war is not fun. War is not something simple you can turn on TV and then off and have dinner and go to bed. That war and, is very real. And, and he wrote it in the late 50s, published in the early 60s, which meant the main people he's pointing out are the best and the brightest who said, we can fix this. That The whole generation of buzzed cut well, my father actually buzzed cut a skinny tie wearing technocrats. Right. I, going back to Chaz's question, satire in America is less the dry British humor and more often hidden in more clownish comedy because satire now pretty much is relegated to the TV news shows, which is a strange place to say it. But <laughs> after Saturday Night Live, I mean, the most the most famous satire actually happens to be a a more viable news shows than many. And that, of course, is Colbert and Trevor Noah at this point. But the satire tradition in America, I mean, the biggest satirical piece outside of National Lampoon that I can remember is uh, Wizard of Oz, because that was a satire on the politics of the time. But we don't have the continual fed by a magazine punch 
backbencher, forebencher satire that the the British have. Yeah. Also, as we mentioned, as Catch-22 comes up, I'm just linking you guys to the novel Fawbet, which I want to recommend as a recent military dark comedy novel. The term Fawbet is slang from FOB is forward operating base. So Fawbet is a term for people who don't go outside the wire, as they call it. Who wrote it? This is David Abrams. This is from like five years ago, maybe. I've also, in a more serious, uh, non-satirical work of mine, I've done a lot about PTSD and uh, trauma. And actually, without getting into it at all, next week is the anniversary of a near-death experience of mine. Some serious, scary shit in the world. And uh, Fobbit is very funny. Uh, It says September 4th, 2012. I would definitely recommend checking this one out if you are interested in more military satire. I grew up on Pogo, Walt Kelly's satire of politics with everything going on. He even tackled, and I think he was one of the few to tackle McCarthyism and the Ku Klux Klan publicly. Was was this magazine, book, TV? Pogo was a cartoon series syndicated. Newspaper cartoons. Newspaper cartoons which may not be as British as they are American. I don't know if you have weekly cartoons, but they, they did. the funny pages. They did in the magazines that back to the 18th century. But the funniest thing here, etymology moment, is that pogo sounds very much like pogue. A pogue mm-hmm. is an American term before fobbit for not quite a remph, but someone who just doesn't see battle. Right. You, you have the soldiers and the pogues. And so I don't think there's a correlation there, but there's a similar sound. Yeah, before you had... Fobbits, you had remps, rear, rear exelon, uh, matriarchal fibulators. I'm not going to ruin our R with that word, but that, you understand what it is. Anyway, the, the question becomes, where is satire going to go? Uh, it's, it's interesting to me because by bringing up the military, that is a very rich satire field. Almost all of the military reporting one normally sees is like the duffel blog is satirical. Oh, yeah. There is a tradition there of satire in all forms of media. And sorry, Jeannie, what were you saying? uh, That's also, that's one of the functions of dark humor as a coping mechanism for trauma. If you've experienced or are in positions where dark and potentially dangerous shit is going on, you have to make jokes is one way that some people uh, cope with situations. So it's definitely prevalent in uh, military situations and community. There's very dark humor all across anything that deals with terrible subjects. I mean, the mm. the people that do autopsies, and pol- I've had many friends that have been homicide detectives. And I think... But you were going to say you had many friends who've been autopsied. I, I also, unfortunately, have many friends that have been autopsied. Thanks for bringing up a painful subject. So, yes. Sorry, sweetie. No, dark humor is sometimes important because when light humor seems out of place and inappropriate, dark humor at least gives us something to look at. And we used to say to reducto ad absurdum to keep producing something to experiences until you see what is ridiculous. But there is also the other Latin term that I'm forgetting called exaggeration until you see the big image of this on the wall and you look at it and you say, 
that's kind of funny too. The disproportionality of stuff is one joke that comes to mind from uh, Hour of Terror for disproportion is a lot of working with the callousness of people in media and government to the needs of people. And the story was written primarily before the pandemic and stuff. But there is some things about making, what are we going to do with minimum wage? Oh, well, if it's minimal thing, it can't be that important. And uh, I think that the story tells itself better on paper when you see the way that it's presented. But that kind of humor is, you know, just trying to do something abrasively dark or like, how did all the lead get in the baby formula anyhow? I think so. And I think sometimes there's there can be so many small things that people miss them. So it is a privilege and a curse of writing it to be able to say, I need to show you this and I need to show you it in a way that one, identifies the full situation, two, helps you understand your connection to it. Where does this fit in anybody's life? And three, the different wave that you can see other characters, because let's face it, not everybody in the world was given the same levels of empathy. I, I really don't think. So I think that writing can be that lever to say, let me show you in a way that you can't ignore this situation, these caricatures that I have drawn, and I've made them simple, perhaps in satire, so that Everybody can see something in the way that caricatures, if you were drawing somebody's face, you might say, my goodness, Jeannie has a very square jaw because right there, a cartoonist can make it very square or Chaz has the bald head. And so they would exaggerate that. Exaggerating these features can help people understand, oh, oh, I see that. That is real to me now because we've created satire for it. Yeah. Although I would say one thing I see that I really don't, like in the culture and in the way that people are being manipulated right now is a lot of turning everyone against each other with, you know, red versus blue, all this group of people are your enemies. It's not the ones in charge. It's the other people that we've been told are on the other side of a number of issues that are presented in black and white ways. And uh, that's not quite the same, sorry, as... uh, physical caricature like that, but in terms of what I think is some of the satire we need to see or the ways you can get people to open their eyes is recognizing the predatory nature of the people who are in positions of power no matter what, and very often in spite of things they say and promises made by serial liars who do not deserve positions of ongoing power. It's true, and that is an important feature of it. When you first started to write this, you've sent us a couple pieces. What is your process to get to a whole novel? Do you have a whole arc and set of plots idea, or are you kind of, we call it plotting versus pantsing, writing Mm -hmm. by the seat of your pants versus sitting down and plotting it all out. What are you using for a process? I've heard uh, George R. R. Martin actually uh, describe it as the difference between architecture, I believe, and gardening and saying, you know, sometimes you spread ideas like seeds and things just grow and other people plot things out and they know exactly where everything's going to go and the order stuff will be in in a more architectural way. And I would say 
that for the political satire stuff, usually these stories begin from some level of observation of people and of human nature incidents or uh, particular ways that I know people mistreat others or uh, interns pop up in some of the stories and in you know the political stuff of just like the interns are literally just there for the abuse toxic workplace dynamics and things right uh, no this is um, I think I'm I'm too down in the weeds let me let me step up to 20,000 feet as you are putting this all towards a novel do you I have an idea of a whole story arc or are these going to be a series of smaller vignettes, smaller lenses that are merely collected together. So is it a collection of stories or well, are you actually looking at this yeah, as traditional novel? It's a collection of six stories that I'm getting right now formatted for publication. And as you can see from the two I sent you, they're marked as story four and story two because they're part of a six story collection that I'm currently getting ready and formatting for publication, which is going to be covering somewhat broader range of subject matter. But these two stories are political satire. Excellent. So when I think of a novel, I think of more a story and narrative and arc a theme and pieces. So it sounds like you are working at more of a collection here. Yeah. So these six stories are collectively about a lot of human toxicity and supernatural and magical realist elements. But really, I'm looking at a lot of dark sides of things on when you say the 20,000 foot level, like you did uh, before, some of it's political satire, some of it is more personal or interpersonal human stuff. Some of these stories are also have some mystical and biblical elements that I'm weaving into everything. So we're covering a lot of ground altogether. Uh, What are some of the tools you use? Are you just a Microsoft word sitter or we've had some people say they swear by Scrivener to organize their thoughts together? Do you use any particular tools? Well, I really enjoyed the handwriting process. There's something about doing notes on paper that works for me and I'll transfer stuff. Like like some people have the Eureka moment thing or whatever. I have some great ideas that originally start on a sticky note or a scrap of paper. Cool. And all of those things get collected. Yeah. And transferred elsewhere and in various forms. But as You may have heard uh, manuscripts don't burn. The important ones always come back. Uh, I wish I could believe that. (laughs) (laughs) So where are you looking going from here? Are you thinking of career writer or journalism? Or how did you come to this uh, wanting to become a writer and author? Well, I've been doing it since I was 10 years old, really seriously writing. I read The Hobbit on my own was uh, the first full book that I finished. And I just have always been very driven by uh, stories and storytelling. Did you ever get published in schools or journalistic works? Have you considered writing for papers? What all do you write for? With the media situation and the world as it's been right now, I've been in a very interesting 
sort of passage of working on a lot of things that I know don't immediately have a home or that haven't been ready to submit or share around. But I'm getting to the point where I have enough together that uh, that I'm doing that and that I have this uh, short story collection together. And I have a second one that's actually all going to be biblical stories, is uh, adaptations of biblical narratives into the format of a more modern literary fiction. So I got uh, things on a few different burners. Excellent. Do you have any advice for uh, young would-be writers? Hey, that's my line. <laughs> Sorry. John, say it. So satire is, is a little bit different from other things. If, if you were a young writer trying it, how, how do you start? Where, where do you set yourself to write satire? Which is the same question rephrased. Mm. What advice do you have for new writers in the form or young writers just getting into it? Well, I would say if you see something that upsets you and you think, especially if it's something hypocritical that you can capture in a situation, that's a good seed for the start of at least a bit of what I've done in some of these cases or in some aspects of this writing has really begun from, for example, in my world, it's the 48th president is the current one in the time of my stories. And part of my initial thing was like, how do I ensure that this character is and still will be worse than what we see of Donald Trump and the things that you see them saying on the news? And so I really started on that from the perspective of what are character traits that that are not just to have a character called frontal rump or something that are based on things I've observed in people or I've had the unpleasant, instructive uh, opportunities to experience close up. And I'm pretty confident that the character is a terrible person in ways that are distinctly different from some of what we have been seeing and ways that I hope will be entertaining, but also instructive or get people to recognize toxic character traits. That covers it for me. All right. We will put links to the podcast and the interesting things we've mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag to wear and impress your friends. And here's a shout out to our favorite coffee to being seen in Sunnyvale. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.